we have a couple of people who have left. You guys have kind of made the introduction. And Chris, you probably heard me mention his name on occasion. Um, it is a pleasure. I mean, most of you guys already know this guy, but it's a real treat for us to have Mr. West Fryer with us today, and we're going we're gonna to absorb like sponges and see if we can uh, carry forth our mission even a little better than, uh, than, than we have been after, after you're here. I know um, I've learned something every single time you've, I've said it on your sessions. I know these guys will learn something, and it's a pleasure to have you here, and it's a pleasure it's even a better pleasure that we, are, we can be a little bit selfish and have a little bit of, co of a cozy group. We, we waffled back and forth on whether to invite some other lo locales, but I, you know, I think we, aren't we kind of desperate, Crystal? So we need, <laughs> we're sort of, we need more special help than everybody else. That's so. right, we're special. So anyway, um, with that, I'm sure we'll get, you'll get to know some of these folks, and uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you now. All right, well thanks, Ken. I am thrilled to get to be here with you all today and appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about things I love. You know, we get to teach a lot of stuff sometimes, but it's not always things that we love to talk about. So <clears throat> our lineup for, for today and tomorrow, we're going to be talking about copyright-friendly images and using them effectively in presentations this morning. This afternoon, we're going to have an uh, introduction to the Mac operating system, really, for newbies to Mac. Tomorrow morning, we'll be talking about powerful ingredients for blended learning and really talking about a variety of different tools that we can use to work the web more effectively, to utilize it for research, and to utilize it for learning with students. Um, and then we're going to talk about Mac tips and tricks, sort of a menagerie of different uh, advanced and intermediate, I guess, ideas for how we can use our Macs to do lots of different powerful things. And then tonight we're going to have a presentation about the Celebrate Oklahoma Voices and Story Chasers project, and there'll be a presentation at Rotary about that. So I'm going to audio record this session, and I'll make this available. So if you have to duck out or you can't capture one of the other sessions, you may not want to listen to three hours of you know another session. But one of the things I do believe technology affords us to do is to shift our learning where we don't just have to be face-to-face -face at the moment and at the time. I have been doing some more driving in the last week. I was down in Lubbock, and then I was up in Kansas, and now out here in southwest Oklahoma, been listening to my audiobooks on Audible, you know, listening to podcasts. And so, anyway, it uh, is a free thing to be able to do uh, that kind of recording since I've got this recorder and the other thing that we're going to do, for those of you that are on laptops, is we'll go ahead and create a back channel. And I'm going to use this as a space to both model what we can do in a blended learning setting. We have laptops, and we can get questions, and we can get responses. But also as a way of archiving things that will come up, or questions that you might have, or links that we want to share that may or may not be in the handout right now. So let's talk about that. Um, there's a, a project called Etherpad, and Google bought them a while back, and the thought was that Google would integrate Etherpad into its, uh, um, what was it, it wasn't Google Voice, help me Kent, um, their new new age collaboration, the thing they dropped, anybody Buzz. can help with this. No, it wasn't Buzz, it was the, we're all, the Wave, the wave that's right, Google Wave, which they've now discontinued. So Etherpad, however, is one of the best places I've found, especially for a class of students,
to have a space online to synchronously type and share and put information up. If we're at a conference, more more of a, a traditional conference, Today's Meet is a website that ends up being used for this, and you create a room and decide how long you want that room. But this is more like a chat where everybody's just sequential, and it's a little easier to, to get lost there. Etherpad, I really, really like because it lets us create a document together, and it lets us have a chat over to the side. So um, if you go to the website, etherpad.com, you don't have to do that right now, that website will show you several different places that are hosting this for free. Do you all host an instance of Etherpad? Have you all, have you all played with this or utilized this before? I've used it for one day. Okay. So it's open source. You can install your own version of it. The one that I've used the most, and I teach pre-service teachers, um, their technology for teachers, their technology in the classroom course. Um, I've used PiratePad and then iEtherpad. So what I've done I've gone to the website, iEtherpad.com, and I could, say, create a public pad, and much like a tiny URL, it would make a cryptic, you know, set of numbers that would be our, our, uh, our room. But if one has not been created yet for Western Oklahoma State College, is that right? W-O-S-C? No? Yes. What should I do again? Well, I'm just, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, no, we don't have one, so. Okay. What it's going to do is just on the iEtherpad.com site, it's going to say, hey, there's no Etherpad document. Would you like to create one? Sure. So this is free to do, and what you can do now, if you would like, is you can go, if you've got a, a computer with a web browser, you can go to this address. And what, I'll, what I'll be doing is I'll drop links in here, and then you can also um, put links, you can ask questions, and uh, we, we will use this as an interactive space, but also as a, as a way to document things. This is a little disruptive. It's a little bit different to be having a presentation, and then you know people, especially if you have a screen behind you, they're able to type and they're able to share links and, and share things. Um, I was in Alabama a couple weeks ago and working with ninth grade teachers, and the look of sheer terror on their faces when they thought about, you know, giving their students, the, the checking out the laptop cart and then letting them, you know, type when they could be anonymous in this environment. They just, no, I'll never do that. So it's going to vary on your situation and your context. The benefit of this is I don't have to pay any money for this. No one has to log in. I can come up here and put my name. And then over here on this space, I can go ahead and type something that's more like a chat message. And then that chat would be over here. So if we want to talk about lunch or talk about something like that, we can do that over in this space. But then this is the document that we're going to create together. So I can copy content, um, text content, and I can paste that over here. And I'll say notes from... Oklahoma State. Today's the 25th, and tomorrow will be the 26th. All right, Kim. <laughs> All right. And so, it becomes very important in a blended learning situation for us to be able to effectively share hyperlinks. Links learning and, and the ability to have links is extremely powerful because there's so much content that I can connect to. And 
I can connect you as students uh, or as participants in our session to content, but you can also connect me to content as well. So the two links that I'd like to share as we begin our session is a website and a domain that I registered called talkwithmedia.com. I'm actually in the process of writing a book that I'm going to have finished by this summer in our, our international technology conference, the ISTE conference. And that session is just called Powerful Ideas for Sim Simple Ideas for Powerful Sharing. And there's different ways that we can talk with media. And today, we're going to focus in on images. Uh, how, who's got registered a domain before? How many domains? Does someone have a record in here, you think, for owning a domain? The fingers get pointed to Ken. Ken, how many domains do you own as a person, do you think? And then... 30 or 40? 30 or 40 domains. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I own a few. And how much would you say it costs to register a domain if you don't get ripped off? 8 to 10 bucks. 8 to $10, something like that. And then you have to renew that on an annual basis. I've got one. It's been... Actually, it's 8 to 20 one that I pay the most for, I own using GoDaddy.com. Right. But you can't register it on GoDaddy. I have to register it somewhere else. Yeah. Because anything that has the term GoDaddy in it, they've got they won't. They won't, they've got blocked. Okay. But I mean, so it really, really, you shouldn't have to pay more than eight or nine. Eight or nine bucks? So I think I did mine for about $12. There's talkwithmedia.com. But then you have to have a place to host that site. And so I've been using... Uh, this website called posters.com and it lets you associate your site with the domain for free. So anyway, this is a, this is a group of resources that's going to continue to grow and when we talk with media, we can talk with images, we can use audio, we can use video. We'll be focusing on images today. The other link that I'm going to share is a more traditional workshop curriculum. And so, again, I'm going to go over to our Etherpad, and I'm going to drop this in. And so this link is to a Google site that I've created, <clears throat> and it includes the videos that I'll be sharing and just kind of a linear format of a curriculum that we're going to talk about today. So let's begin by talking about some frames of where we can approach this, this topic of copyright-friendly images and using media. And the first frame is going to be the power of images. I drove on Wednesday afternoon of last week up from Oklahoma City, where I live with my family, and drove up to Manhattan, Kansas, where my parents are living, and saw the most dramatic scenes of, of control burning that, I, that I've seen. This time of the spring, <clears throat> we get spontaneous fires on the prairie, but we also, oftentimes in the Flint Hills in the northeast part of Kansas where they live, have controlled burns. And oh my gosh, this was on US 77, just between Harrington and Junction City. And it was just really, really dramatic. Um, images are very powerful. I was corrected by Bernie Dodge of San Diego State University a year or so ago, actually on Twitter, because I was repeating what I had heard some people say, and that was the brain processes an image three or four hundred times faster than text. And he said, you can't say that. We, don't, we can't really prove that. But what we do know is that the neural connections that connect our ear to our brain are far fewer than those that connect our eye to our brain. There's something like three or four hundred neurons that connect our ear to our brain and something like three thousand or four thousand that connect the, the eye to the brain. So no one tells you when you look at an image 
where are you supposed to start with that with that image or with that picture? Um, we could go to images of a lot of different things. Here's we went spring break. We were in San Diego. My wife uh, went for the second year to a children's pastors conference. First time our kids had ever been to Disney. Nobody tells your brain where to start processing an image. When I put a page of text on the screen, we read English, so usually we start in the upper left corner and we start to read left to right and top to bottom. But images are extremely powerful. If you've been to any chain recently with an updated menu, IHOP, Chili's, um, you know, they're continually renewing their menus and they're very visual. Why? They know that images communicate powerfully. And so we need to use images effectively because we live in a media-saturated society and we cannot escape media anywhere we turn. My youngest here, Rachel, is seven. We were just in, the, in checking out a Walmart neighborhood market yesterday getting, some, getting our Easter ham. And we're looking at the magazines there. And I probably had said this before to Sarah, but she didn't remember it. And I said, Rachel, you know none of these women look that way, right? They're all fake. And she looks at me like, what? I said, yeah, if they have any kind of pimple or anything on their skin, they're using Photoshop on the computer. And they're, you know, I'm going to say this over and over again because it's important to recognize how media is used effectively, but also how it's used to manipulate. In some cases, how it's used to deceive. And it's used to create very powerful images about beauty. And uh, I don't have it linked here, but I don't even know if I can Google for it. Have you seen the Dove ad uh, for beauty and that ad campaign? It's always... Dove ran this. Have you all seen this before? I see a couple nods. They ran this, this campaign in a while. Of course, they're trying to sell soap, but they're putting out the idea of how images are manipulated. And also, I mean, it's has to do with makeup a lot as well as images. But this is stuff that we don't always see when we're looking at the magazine cover or when we're checking out of the grocery store line. <laughs> and it's not just a little makeup that we put on or we took that one pimple. We've actually created a completely different person that doesn't exist in the real world. But thanks to Photoshop and, and thanks to... <laughs> The power of technology. We have some very distorted ideas about about beauty. Have you seen that cloud-based facelift tool? Mm -hmm. Face, facelift? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll post it on the pad. Okay. There's a great yeah. I could Google for it, but since we have this pad, so here's an example. I want to show that video. It wasn't in our original curriculum, so I'm going to put uh, Dove Beauty ad, and I'll just drop the link in. Now I'll be making a text copy of this link and I'll provide this in addition to the audio recording of our session today. So hopefully anything that you see here you'll be able to link to and be able to readily get back to. So that's one frame that where I enter into this conversation about visual images. I want to use images appropriately. I want to use them powerfully. I also want to help my students be critical thinkers. I also want to help my children do that too. 
But we all need to understand the power of media, and one of the ways we begin to understand the power of media is by creating with media. Another intersection that I have, and I'm going to skip to the, the third one, because the second one I'm going to jump off on and talk about longer, is this idea of story chasing and creating media. This evening, we're going to have a presentation about the Celebrate uh, Oklahoma Voices project that I've been helping others work with for about four years now in Oklahoma. We've had over 850 videos created, 866 to date, by Oklahoma teachers and students about all kinds of things. Many of these are interviews of family members, of grandparents. Um, uh, some of these are stories from uh, interviewing veterans who served in Korea or World War II or, or, the, or the Gulf conflict. When we create media and we share it on the Internet, we really need to know about copyright. We really need to know about what can I do and what can I not do? And where should I go to get images? How do I avoid getting in trouble personally? And how do I avoid you know, my institution and my organization getting in trouble? And so one of the contexts for this, I'll, sh I'll show this video, is uh, been highlighted by Temple University in their project, The Cost of Copyright Confusion. And they have a whole, they've written articles and, and published on this. But let me go ahead and use some media. And what I've done is I've downloaded this video. I'll talk about different ways to do this in the tricks and tips session. But in a lot of cases where bandwidth is not as amazingly fast and reliable as it is here at Western, um, it, it can be a problem for me as a teacher if I am trying to play a YouTube video and it's the afternoon and we're at school and, uh, you know what, the internet's not being as fast. Or maybe YouTube's blocked. There's all kinds of reasons for this. So this video, um, we may not watch this entire thing, <clears throat> but before we start this, and we don't have everybody on the back channel, which is fine. Let me give you a question. What guidelines <clears throat> do you give students today about copyright and their class projects, okay, for their class assignments? Um, I'm going to start a little timer. The timer I usually use is this one called Online Stopwatch. I, I love web-based tools, right? They don't require me to have special software. I could be on any computer. They'll just work. This is a nice stopwatch. It counts down, and it has a little ringer on it, a little bell that goes off. Um, so I, I use this one all the time. I just found this one this morning, so we're going to give this a try. This is, a little, it, this is an egg timer. And I'm going to give you two minutes to do this. I don't know. This one doesn't have a bell. But oh, it's, kind of, it's a little different. So we're going to use this. You have two minutes. I want, and if you're by yourself, go ahead and shift so you can talk with somebody else. Talk about the guidelines you give your students right now when it comes to copyright for Im using images and doing assignments. Okay? Go.
right. So let's we'll we'll use our little Etherpad here, and I'll type. And if you anybody wants to jump in here uh, and type, you can. What what's something that you tell your students about copyright images, class projects? I heard not much. Would that be one thing? Okay. Oops. We get our own color when we start to type, so I need to. Oh, oops, look, I just. Oh, sorry, I can't. I'll try to get my own line. There we go. <coughs> what else? And look, we can see it's yellow and it's can't. This is cool. He's typing in yellow. The work must be transformative. What else? Yep, don't mess with Disney. Yep. <laughs> Leave the mouse alone. The mouse likes to sue people. We've heard that, right? We've heard stories about teachers being, or institutions being, being I, sued. I've probably totally changed since listening to Michael Weck. Uh-huh. Um, and the whole issue of transformative, the transformative nature. Right. Um, if you've taken the work, I mean, obviously we've all relied on the protection and geography of our classroom. Ever. But, um, you know, he's the first guy I've ever heard say, well, it's pretty black and white. But, but, but the issue is the transformative nature. Are you taking something, using it just as it is, or are you transforming it to comment on it? Are you taking it to mm -hmm. uh, use it for educational purposes? Are you taking it so that you're not trying to gain commercially on it? I mean, those factors all are in the end, but that really comes under that other Fair use requires transformation. One of the things that we've established as a content guideline for our Oklahoma Voices videos, because we're dealing with this every week, right? We've got folks submitting these videos. You have to have, for us, some audio narration. You can't simply just take some pictures, put a song with it, and then put that online. Now, that might be fair use, and the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, issued some guidelines this last summer which were pretty exciting. One of them said that jailbreaking your phone is not illegal. And it also said that you can um, take, take, take songs on YouTube and put videos and uh, create your own versions of those, and, and that can be fair use. It was some clarification of fair use law. But we know that you know, if we're adding voice narration, that's a much more transformative use of a song than simply putting putting photos up there. A lot of times that's what our students want to do. But also, how much critical thinking did that take? You know, how much thought went into that? If you are going to transform something and add critical comment and add your own your own thoughts, you know, that's going to require a lot more than just, hey, I was able to put put pictures to this and, and put that online. Um, who anybody heard the 30 seconds, five Five to ten percent. Uh, those guidelines, those rules. Anybody tell those to their students? Don't use more than thirty seconds or any of those things. No. Uh, there's a 1986 fair use guidelines for educational media, and one of the things that gets circulated a lot in, when, it, when it talks when, we, when it comes to copyright was this. Fair Use Guidelines for Educational Multimedia. Here it is. This was created in 1986 by some well-meaning, see, posted October 16, 1996, 
by some well-meaning educators who got together and wanted to create some bright line rules for copyright, okay? Because I'm not going to pick on librarians. Let me preface this by saying librarians are at the center of conversations about what it is, what it means to be literate today, about images, about, you know, electronic books, so many things. And, and librarians in many, many cases are on the vanguard of this. At the same time, however, I've had librarians almost come over the table at me, you know, at a conference when I suggest we use Wikipedia to help teach critical thinking and to do research. We've never told kids to believe everything that they read uh, in, in one source. And Wikipedia is a very good place to get content and also to think about, how do you know that's true? Who said that? There's a lot of citations now in Wikipedia. Anyway, this was created because librarians and others wanted bright line rules. I want to know, what's legal? And they said, well, if you use you know, 30 seconds or less, if you restrict yourself to this percent, you're going to be fine. However, this is not the law. These are guidelines, and in many cases, we can do more than the fair use guidelines for educational media would let us do legally. So one of the things that usually comes out of a brainstorming session like this, and this is a valuable thing to do with your own students, is that there is confusion about copyright issues, and there's also a lot of, edu there's a lot of education that we need to do about these topics. My recommendations for you, and I'll just cut to the chase, and then we're going to see some video and explore these. This is it. And we don't have a cute way of, with an acronym of saying HCF means, I don't know, what's that called when you have a, a word that, a mnemonic, that a mnemonic device? So help us think of a great mnemonic device for HCF. If you'll use media in this order, first, try to get homegrown stuff you create and you make or public domain. That's safe, generally. There are limits some limits, and I'm not going to take your picture and then run a national ad campaign like Virgin Mobile Australia did with a Flickr picture that was taken at a summer camp a few years ago, and the girl and her parents were never asked for permission. Full-size billboards all over the nation of Australia led to a lawsuit and lots of problems. You know, just because I take the picture doesn't mean I can do whatever I want with it. But I do have some pretty good assur you know, assurance that Hey, their grandma's photos from, from up in the attic that were in that shoebox. And I said, can I put these on the internet, grandma? I'd like to, to share these with our interview. She says, yes, that's fine. The second thing wasn't mentioned at all in our conversation yet, and that's creative commons. That's probably the number one most important big concept I'll share today and tomorrow and that you could share with your students. And it is a way to give permission up front for the use of some kind of media. There are millions and millions of pictures today that the photographers who own the images have said, yes, reuse this under conditions X, Y, and Z. Sometimes it's just give me credit. Other times it's give me credit and don't sell it. And there's some other things that they add to. The last thing we want to talk about, I believe, when it comes to copyright images is fair use. That's the use of copyrighted materials without permission under exemptions that are provided in U.S. copyright law. Why is that the last conversation we want to have? Because it's gray and complicated. Because I can't tell you with complete certainty, if you only use 
15 seconds, 30 seconds, this small amount, you'll never have problems. No one would ever sue you. No one would ever, you know, con- contest that. It's important that we don't, however, shy away from the fair use conversation because in our country today, in the United States, we have so much fear surrounding copyright because of stories of lawsuits like the Disney suing the teacher story and because of the music industry, right, suing file shares. We know people are getting sued, people are in trouble, we don't want liability risk. So what has happened, and Temple University's researchers, including Renee Hobbs, have documented this, we have had a big chilling of fair use rights in the United States to the point where librarians will tell teachers and educators will tell teachers, you can't use that book cover, that's copyrighted. When a student asks you, can I use this image, the answer is never an absolute yes or no. It should always be, what are you going to do with it? How are you using it? Because the use of that image can definitely qualify as fair use, but it depends. And that's why the third point here is the last conversation we want to have. Because if we're on level one or two, homegrown or public domain or creative commons, we're not going to have to have this fair use conversation. But this morning, we're going to talk about what these things mean, some resources for helping our students understand them, and real specifically, where can I go to get those copyright-friendly images? When I prepare presentations as an instructor, and when my students prepare assignments and, and things like that for class. Let's look real quickly at this, at, at least part of this video, the cost of copyright confusion, because I think this video highlights some of the problems and, and issues at stake here pretty well. And I'll uh, drop this into, the, the link to this is on our, our main wiki page. I'm going to uh, type Temple University Media Education Lab Copyright into our good friend Google. And here are all the resources that they have about copyright and fair use. Renee Hobbs was a speaker at our state, one of our state reading conferences a couple years ago here in Oklahoma and really is doing some, of, some, some very important work in the context of media literacy. Um, they've got lots of links here to the articles and things like that that they published, but this video summarizes it pretty well. Um, as you watch this video, when we use media, it's always a good idea to give a question and give, give a thought. I want you to think about copyright confusion in your own classroom or with your own students. Do you have any copyright confusion? And if so, what impact does that have today with respect to the use of media or the non-use of media for you or with your students? Oh, from this 
newspapers or magazines that students either read or they have read themselves. Um, they use information from YouTube, the internet, videos that either they enjoy or videos that students enjoy. I need to be able to use materials that I taped off air because the videos in the library are just not current enough. My students feel that it's important to use popular music and music videos in creating their art because it explains them, it explains the times. Now, they're basically giving a definition or another point of view. To them, it's their identity, it's their friendships, it's their social sphere, it's their connection to culture. If I can't bring that in, then I can't help them analyze their place in culture and imagine where they might want to be in culture. Copyright law is friendlier to good teaching than many teachers now realize. Fair use is like a muscle that needs to be exercised, but people can't exercise it in a climate of fear and uncertainty. When we interviewed more than 60 media literacy educators, we found that many were concerned about their rights. Teachers get conflicting messages from their colleagues and their supervisors about copyright. It seems like the entire world is cop... Access these materials to comment on them. 
while I respect the rights of the copyright owner, the copyright holder, it seems like in the last few years that has really gotten out of control. Everything we want to use, every little piece, no matter how short, seems like it's copyrighted and we can't use it. And I recognize that because when we hosted our own film festival, there were so many questions surrounding the um, guidelines that we posted in these country forms. Oftentimes it was like, well, what if we just use a little of uh, run DMCs in just 30 seconds of it? People would recognize exactly what it is, and it's perfect for what the kids wanted to convey in this particular scene. Is it all right? And I mean, I didn't even know. Many students uh, want to incorporate popular culture into their media productions. They want to use popular music, they want to use advertising, they want to do commentary on film and television programs. And in most cases, we found that many media teachers prohibit students from using copyrighted material in their own creative production. I really discourage my students from using popular music in the piece that they create in the classroom, in their own youth production, because I'm fearful about what's going to happen when they try to use it, submit it to festivals, take it outside of the classroom. We found that teachers are afraid to share instructional materials and lesson plans related to the use of mass media and popular culture. At the same time, the kids really want to be seen by as many people as they can. I'm just afraid that we might get in trouble. The collective judgment of every creative community informs the interpretation of fair use. Courts take notice of what creators regard as fair and reasonable. Documentary filmmakers got together and developed a consensus about what fair use means to them. They wrote the documentary filmmakers' statement of best practices in fair use. It changed what was possible for them. We can replace copyright confusion with a shared understanding of how copyright and fair use protect us as media literacy educators in building students' critical thinking and communication skills.
and this will be the version of this video that I'll play next time. So, because evidently something happened when I had tried to download that before. <coughs> so I'll put this into my copyright folder and go ahead and save it. So it's going to download that 12.6 megabyte file right to my hard drive so that I'll be able to uh, watch it. Another thing that I'll mention as a little technique is there's a website that I've started to use sometimes called QuietTube. This is free. And what you do is QuietTube has a little bookmarklet and you can drag it so that it's on your bookmark bar. I'm using the Chrome web browser, but this will work in other web browsers too. I just use Chrome because it's the fastest web browser on any platform I've, I've ever used. It's faster than Firefox, Internet Explorer, and I like fast. Um, so when I click this, watch what happens to the video. I click QuietTube, and it just strips everything out. So like an embedded video that doesn't show related videos and other things, it just strips out the comments and the related videos and allows me to present that to my students. So if I didn't embed it early on, um, for whatever reason, I can go ahead and use QuietTube as a technique for just having the video there without the extraneous distractors. So let me go ahead and start a stopwatch. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. I want you to turn to your neighbor and talk about the question I gave you. How does copyright confusion affect your classroom now affect your students, um, affect you as an instructor, or does it? something that we just disregard and do it anyway. 
Yeah, you know, Kent, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I think it, uh, people just end up using it and not even paying attention to the copyright. I think we see that all the time. Yeah. It's fine when it stays in the classroom. It doesn't go anywhere. But as soon as somebody publishes it to the web, then you may have trouble. It's just too big and imposing to pay any attention to. Maybe you're just ignoring <laughs> How do you all address copyright? literacy and copyright knowledge now. Obviously, we're doing it today with this workshop, but besides this, what are some ways that you all have addressed copyright knowledge for students, copyright knowledge for teachers? Has there been... Uh, we've, we've done probably copyright sessions here once a year or so. So what are, what are the big takeaways from that library session? If we were to interview students. I just know that when they, because I have a, a, I teach more mathematics than I'm not doing a lot of, um, it's my own work. I mean, right. It seems like on the library it's more plagiarism, more print is what they deal with. Mm -hmm. And attribution, and talking about attribution maybe too. We need to find out, you guys should go. An interview, some kids coming out. All right, what are your takeaways? What are you walking away from this session with? A key element is that attribution is not the same thing as copyright compliance. And very often we're confused with that. We think, oh, but I said I got that from da da da. You know, the lawyer never said, did you follow MLA? Look at your period and semicolon here. You didn't get that right. The judges don't say that. Why? Because they're not concerned about did you follow proper attribution, they're concerned about fair use law and how it was used. So this is a really good question to ask and something to look at is how are we getting that information out and also are we playing a fear card? When I was you know started to teach school in the mid-90s in Lubbock, Texas, we all had to go to the copyright session. And I think the main thing was to try and scare everybody. You will face you know, the litigator, if you, you know, use this. I mean, it was just, we heard about the, the lawsuits and we heard about file sharing and it was, it was all about fear rather than being balanced and saying, yes, there are liability concerns when you violate copyright, but there are so many ways we can comply with copyright law and use media. It wasn't a balanced approach at all. When we, when we talked about this topic in the past, it seemed we mostly focus on the uh, Creative Commons side, mm -hmm. and then, uh, the public domain, right. and actual fair use, and that is just because it's easier. It is, and so I think this is a challenging balance to strike, and I'm, that's what I'm attempting to, to do with our session today, is to strike that kind of balance, because we shouldn't, in my view, um, you know, just play the fear card and scare everybody away from media, because if we do, huh, we are crippling ourselves as educators, and we're also passing along disinformation to our students because there's a lot of ways that we can comply with copyright and use images powerfully. But at the same time, we don't want to push this Creative Commons and, and public domain and, and homegrown avenues so strongly that we ignore fair use. So it's a challenge. On the topic of fair use, the best two-minute summary I've ever seen is a short little video that was created and it's hosted by the cyber law website at Stanford University. So I've got these links. 
Um, this is called A Fair Use Tale. It's hosted by the Center for Internet Society at Stanford Law School. And the whole thing is done with Disney movie clips. Um, it's available to stream. You can see the whole thing on YouTube. And for our Oklahoma Voices project, we've actually created a trimmed version of this, which just goes to chapter four. And that's what I'm going to show you here. So this particular video, I think, is a really good one to try and summarize what is it that fair use does. And we're going to talk a little bit about fair use, and then we're going to shift and talk about Creative Commons and presentations and the idea of using large images and things. But I really like using this in workshops with teachers. And let me ask you, I'll ask you the, the question at the end. What are your takeaways? You're going to see about two minutes of this. What are your takeaways about fair use? What the heck is fair use? Hey, what the heck is fair use? This might sound crazy, but there are um, limitations on copy, right? Fair use is about trans transformative. Is this a transformative use? If I'm simply taking a Disney clip and putting it, you know, without any change on the internet, or I take an entire video and I put it on the internet, not fair use. That's called copying, duplication. You know, fair use involves utilizing it 
for a different purpose, and then there are these different things that we can look at that determine whether or not that's fair. Um, they're trying to make a point too using Disney clips. We talked about earlier how Disney goes after anybody who's a Disney club, but uh, they're, they're using it fairly, and Disney can't do anything about it. Well, <laughs> and sometimes they put words on it, like put some text on it. Mm-hmm. Right, they use some text to try and emphasize what that was. Like when they talked about teaching, they had a clip, and then they were saying teaching. Did it seem like it was a little bit longer at that point, what they took from Disney, than what? Could have been. Um, you know, but this is something else too. They, one of the criteria for determining fair use is the portion. But I can use the entire thing and have a critique of of the work um, and have that qualify as fair use when I'm adding critical, you know, critical comments. Um, so, uh, portion. Because about the limit, portion. No, that comes from the 1986 guidelines for fair use media, which were well-intentioned, but they have resulted in librarians and teachers thinking that those are the bright line rules, that that's the law, and the law does not say that. The law says there's four different things that you take into consideration, and it's, it's fuzzy. It's not completely clear. If you use short clips, it's likely that you're going to comply with fair use. But that doesn't mean you can never use, you know, an entire thing. Let's take a commercial, for example. If we were going to take a uh, Super Bowl ad, I think it costs $3 million for 30 seconds in this year's Super Bowl. And if we were going to do an evaluation of that, I mean, 30 seconds, I mean, you know, that's a pretty short time anyway. I could take the entire Super Bowl ad and overlay my voice to it and, you know, add my critical, you know, commentary about that and comply with copyright law. That's using the entire thing not just a portion, but it depends on what I do with it. If I'm not transforming it, then I'm not, you know, adding that value. I'm not changing, you know, what... Okay, okay. when you say what I do with it, do you mean how I transform it or how I use it outside of what my intent is to spread it around? Well, both of those things. Yeah, the transformative use. The TEACH Act was, was passed... Um, to to give online instructors the same rights to use media within a closed online environment that I would have inside the classroom. You know, if we're just here in this room, that's different than if I'm, you know, putting something on the internet. So, because that involves commercial impact. You know, if I'm going to take an entire song and have that, you know, on the web, potentially that could impact the, the person selling that song. So that, you know, that, that, that was put up to help provide clarity for online instructors. But if I'm going to share that on the internet, and that's what we're doing with our Oklahoma Voices project, right? We want teachers and students to be sharing these online. It's really important that we look at transformative, transformative uses. So you'll have um, you know, music, audio in here, and we encourage the teachers to first, and the students, look and see what other sources are there. Are we trying to establish this idea of the 30s and, you know, that kind of a, of a era? You know, what, what audio is available? Do 
we have to use a copyrighted work, a lot of times our students are going to want to take, you know, I want to use this song. Why do you want to use this song? Because I love it. Well, what's the purpose of your project? What are you trying to do? Maybe find and create a, uh, a remix of that video or of that song, but that might not fulfill your course requirements here. Um, so, will you? No, nope, go ahead. Is that photo appropriate to share? Where was I doing at that time, and where was I? And 
the transparency of our lives is different today than you know it was a while back. But the legality is, I mean, I need to be asking for permission, and that's the same in schools too. You know, we need to ask for permission, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not completely 100% doing this right. My mother was was down a couple weeks ago, and she was a little upset with me for you know sharing an image and not not asking her permission. Um, it's not just something we should do uh, from a respect standpoint. It's, it's also something we should legally do. So there's a lot of sharing that's going on now that's not having permission, and we need to talk about that, you know, with students. The norms are changing. You know, what was normal just a few years ago, um, you know, if I would guess when you go to certain, you know, some parties, it's probably the norm that you're going to have your photograph taken. They've done party pics and stuff like that that you can buy. Well, it's probably a lot more normal for those things to be online. I've heard that you can't go outside in London now without having multiple security cameras capturing you. And the security agencies are doing really a lot with facial recognition and being able to identify from a homeland security terrorism standpoint, you know, people. There's a lot of stuff that enters into this as far as privacy and things. But when it comes to the images about us, I mean, when, when you're Google or when you Google yourself, right, 11-year-old uh, just was, just had this conversation this weekend, and we're talking about, you know, images that we see. Um, and, you know, what, there's, there are some different Sarah Fryers that are around, but, oh, guess what? Here's my Sarah Fryer. This is us with um, Angus King, the former governor of Maine that, that uh, led the Maine Learning Technology Initiative with laptops. And we, we, we talked about this. We said, is that a picture that you're happy, you know, having online when people go, yeah, it is. We need to be having that kind of conversation. And as we share images and media, we need to be thinking about the responsibility that we have to comply with the law and to also be respectful of people's privacy and their rights. Okay, so there's a lot of issues here. Let's take this to the classroom level and talk. We, we've got the opportunity to um, you know, think about fair use, talk about fair use, and, and have that conversation. But that is going to be a pretty complicated conversation. It's going to vary. It's going to depend. You can't tell somebody. Yeah, in all cases, you can use that particular image. Well, what are you going to do with that? Are you making a, a poster and then you're going to be selling that as a fundraiser for your club? Huh, that's a little bit different than I'm using that one image, you know, in a five-minute video that's about, you know, prescription drug abuse in Oklahoma or something or whatever my, my topic might be. So, what I recommend and what I think through our work with Story Chasers and the Oklahoma Voices Project we've, we've learned is to try and steer people first to thinking about this idea of homegrown and Creative Commons licensed images and media. And um, let me just show you an example first and then we're going to we'll look at some, um, some places where you can go to get media. I had a chance to speak to 75 Army soldiers and civilians a couple weeks ago at Fort Sill on April 12th at this first Intellectual Warriors Conference. We have examples of PowerPoint abuse all the time in our classrooms. And most often, PowerPoint is used as a text document rather than a visual presentation media. Whenever we use a multimedia software program like PowerPoint or like Keynote, we are going to be more effective if we allow the images to speak to themselves, we don't insult our audience by reading off the slide, 
and we use it as a visual medium rather than a text-based medium. So in the presentation that I shared, there is some text. This is one of my favorite quotes because you think about iPads. Future is here. Okay? We just all don't have these devices yet, but you know, rapidly we're, we're moving into this world where you know, everyone has a screen, everyone has multiple devices. So I do use text in my, in my presentations, um, but I try to model for my students and just use as a presenter an, an ethic and an idea that Gar Reynolds calls presentation zen. And, I'm, and I violate that sometimes. But generally, I will minimize the amount of text on my slides and I will maximize the image. And the reason for that is because it's most effective. The brain is going to process an image better than text. We have myths about multitasking. How many of you uh, ever turn on the closed captioning when you show a video to students? Anybody do that? Anybody uh, learn a foreign language or gotten better at a foreign language through closed captioning? Lots of people, for instance, get better at English by simply turning closed captioning on when they watch television. Why is that? It's because you're forcing your brain to attend to the text. You literally can't turn off text that's at the bottom of the screen. And you might have your students say, I don't want that on there. But no, I want you to attend to that. I want... I want um, Here's an example. Now, CNN's kind of taking that to another level. I'm just talking about the text. Um, let me go to YouTube, and I'm going to go history, history for music lovers to uh, the YouTube channel. And I'll do the French Revolution. These are a couple teachers that are in Hawaii that have this channel. And this is also a great discussion about fair use and copyright. How in the world did they do this? And one of the most uh, well-known of these, I'll need this first. They've taken all these different popular songs. They've written their own script to it. And um, this one is Lady Gaga's song, Bad Romance. And they've done a whole different version of it. Uh, and they call it French Revolution. Well, no, we'll watch the whole thing. We'll just do a little bit. But they've got the text on. I challenge you to not pay attention to the text that's on the screen. can't watch television that has subtitles on and ignore it. And so, anyway, that's something to think about with the use of media. We could just do a whole case study on this YouTube channel, these videos, the use of you know music and things that students are going to recognize, talking about fair use, uh, but also talking about the power of media to communicate. Um, 
are students going to be able to pick up on things seeing this kind of a media presentation that they might not pick up on if we were just reading text and you know seeing images and maps uh, in our textbook. I don't think this is a replacement for the textbook, but I do think um, it can be used effectively to help students key in on, I mean, I didn't know they wrote the Declaration of Rights on a tennis court. The fact that I've seen them, you know, singing about that and holding a tennis racket, I'll probably remember that a little better. Is that the number one fact that I need to remember about the French Revolution? Probably not. Um, but anyway, this idea of not using a lot of text, I have seen so many examples of this in a business context when I worked for AT&T for two years, um, where, it's, where it's being used really, really poorly. One of the difficulties with this is, if I'm just sharing my slides with you, you have no idea what this story is about. Um, the story that I was telling uh, was from the Air Force Academy, and it had to do with um, a story that uh, one of my instructors had told us about seeing the stealth fighter before it was announced when he was a test pilot in Nevada. And I was using these images to set a context and, and to frame a story and to, to talk about something. We can use text, but we really ought to use it in real limited forms when we're having presentations and use images in, uh, in the way that the presentation software does best, okay, with large pictures um, and, and letting that image provide a backdrop to the story that we want to tell. I'll tell this Pearl Harbor and USS Oklahoma story this evening um, and at, at the, the history meetup that we're going to have. You know, if I'm going to talk about the USS Oklahoma being bombed or torpedoed on December 7th, 1941, you know, it can really help the impact by having that image. And I want to talk about MacArthur um, and the surrender on the Missouri. I can show those kinds of pictures. So this is the next frame where I come to this conversation with, and, and it's, you know, the teacher instructor presentation frame and also the student frame. And so the next link I've given you on your page is to the curriculum I'm using this semester to teach my students Pecha Kucha. And how many of you have heard of Pecha Kucha presentations before? One of you, just kidding. Pecha Kucha started in Japan as um, an event style, basically where geeks could come together, I think, and in 20 slides for six minutes and 40 seconds, you got 20 seconds per slide, um, that's all you have, you know, show your, show your presentation. And it was, I think they, they did in nightclubs. There are some other styles to this that have come about. And lightning talks and ignite talks, speed geeking, <laughs> um, are other models. The lightning talk is a real you know, short talk, just lasting a few minutes. Ignite is an event, kind of like the TED event, but they have uh, slides, 20 slides for 15 seconds that are displayed. And my favorite new term, speed geeking. Speed geeking. There you go. I think this is really cool. You guys could do this at Western. So Harvard's done it. Does that mean we can't do it here? Of course not. Um, just ask different professors to share some of their biggest ideas and the things they're most passionate about in 10 minutes. I just saw this this morning. They called it um, Harvard Thinks Big. And this is the second one that they've done like that. So, you know, as professors, as instructors, what are we more used to? Long lecture, long presentation, you know, three hours, you know, hour presentation. How's the brain set up for that? 
not very well. We're used to short amounts and, and short presentations. So, um, you know, the, the, the institution is probably a better example for us. Nova Scotia Community College does a thing called Festival of Learning. Really? And we were really trying to get Steve to go. Um, I'm going to bring that up in the meeting again today. Because uh, um, I can shoot you, I can actually, I can shoot you a PDF of how they pull it together. Um, but they, they use Pechacucha. Pechacucha. And then they bring, it's not just faculty, but they, anybody who wants to present from the, uh, the, their 11 campuses, they come together. And up until this year, they brought it into the Turo campus, but they're not going to do one of their other campuses. And it, it has been just a phenomenal, phenomenal thing for their institution. You know, because people are seeing the, the, 20, the 20 slides from the, the various people. Will you help me sell that at Dean's meeting today, getting Steve to go? In May. I, because again, it would, it would be something I'd love to, it would be awesome for a couple faculty to go, really, but you know, if we could bring it back and, and emulate that format. I mean, it, to me, it's, it, you know, they're, they're obviously bigger than we are, but it, it seems more relevant to Harvard. But it's cool. It, it, it's kind of the same thing. Same thing. Well, here's where I'm going with this. I'm going to go ahead and just show you an example, a Pechacucha example, and then we're, we're going to take a short little break. And then when we come back, I'm going to show you the resources that I provide to my students, um, how we go about doing this, and other resources that you can utilize to find copyright-friendly images and then to present in this kind of a format where we're using, you know, large, large screen images and we're not, you know, we're not killing people with PowerPoint, basically. Um, so this is a presentation that I shared in Oklahoma City in October of this year. And the, the session is called uh, Open Beta, and it's designed for a lot of developers to share the, top, the ideas that they have, well, and also the products that they've had to create. Um, one of the things I'm really passionate about is balanced content filtering and not over-filtering our, uh, our schools in terms of internet content, and uh, this website, balancedfiltering.org, is, is one project. And so this, this, is, uh, this is an example of part of my advocacy for this. One of the things that's nice about the Pechacucha, we probably all uh, had situations where we have student presentations and they just go on and on forever. Well, you set your slides to automatically advance after 20 seconds. So there's no need to have a clicker. There's no need to wonder how long is this thing going to go. Uh, everybody's done after six minutes and 40 seconds because once you click start, then you're off and you're off and running. Um, for my students, one of the things that I have them do is evaluate each other. And so I've created a Google form, which is free to free to create and use, where the students are able to evaluate each other according to our rubric. So one of the things that you'll see at the top is um, a rubric, and this gives them the specific guidelines for what we're looking for in this presentation. Okay? Um, I will I change this depending upon who signed up to share that day. And I, and I share this feedback with students, although I take their name out. So they'll put the title and their name, and then they evaluate based on the image selection and the, high, and the quality of the images, 
pacing and fluency, their ability to maintain attention, the Pecha Kucha format, and then some technical feedback as well as content feedback, ways to improve new learning. So everybody who's watching this is filling this out. So let's do this real quick and then we will take a break. So I'm going to go ahead and start my slideshow. And we should be advancing automatically here. So we live in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma isn't China, however, in some of our schools, the content filtering that takes place is more severe than what they have in communist China. And these, this is a photograph of the Apple Store, which is right across from the Pearl Tower in Shanghai. We might not think of the Apple Store when we think of China. We might think of the, the wall, um, the Great Wall of China. And that is certainly an example of a obstacle that is, was created to keep people out and to protect people. And we have lots of walls today. You may have heard of the Great Firewall of China. Um, however, in 2007, when I came back from a trip to China for the first time, I did a little comparison between websites that were accessible in China and those that were accessible at the time in Norman Public Schools where I was giving an E-rate presentation. And what I found was that there was far more content filtering happening in Norman Public Schools than was happening in China. Now. One of the content filtering companies, uh, Two Trees, is, it actually provides filtering for um, Edmond Public Schools and for a lot of our schools, and there's a lot of different ones that do this. This is a common site in our schools, and that is, is this blocked? You can't get to it. Um, I'm That's the normal and the exception is It is for a lot of video sites, particularly. And we definitely, and I'll talk about this, need to protect our students. We've got to comply with the law, and I'm not advocating a, a Wild West, no filtering. I'm advocating balance filtering. But, you know, this is, I think, a chemistry balance. It's a lot harder to take a balanced approach to a topic rather than an extreme approach. It's a lot easier to get people riled up and fearful than it is to help people think reasonably and logically about a topic. My wife has heard FBI and Oklahoma um, Bureau of Investigation folks just play the fear card. This is my, my fear picture. I'm not a big you know, cat fan, so if you are, I apologize. Play the fear card. My, my wife was ready to throw away our computers after this presentation for Girl Scouts about internet predators because you know the whole presentation was just how everyone on the internet was a predator. And there are predators that are online, but there's also a lot of other people that are there too. So a couple years ago, I started this project called Unmasking the Digital Truth to talk about things like SEPA, the Children's Internet Protection Act, FERPA, COPA. Uh, these are laws that require things like kids to be 13 before they have a Facebook account or another kind of online account. And while these restrictions exist, they do not require all of our schools to block all video sites or to block every site that allows anyone to have a profile or to create or share content. Even email in a lot of our public schools, you know, we've blocked, we've blocked all that, not only from students, but also from teachers. So a couple people to know about who are researchers in this area, Dana Boyd has recently uh, done her dissertation in the last three years from the um, Berkman Center for Internet and Society at UC Berkeley, and she studied social networking and students and what they're doing with respect to social networking. Um, 
Nancy Willard has the website cyberbullying.org, and so her, her website, and I've seen her present before, is really good. And what, one of the bottom line takeaways is, what do we know about kids who are at risk online? Nancy will tell us they're the same kids that are at risk face-to-face. -face. The most dangerous word to talk about on the internet with strangers is sex. It's not a good thing to talk about with people you don't know online. And so kids who are liable to go meet someone that they don't know and they've talked to sex about, this is a dangerous scenario. We have groups like the Partnership for 21st Century Skills talking about how we need to promote more blended learning, but I don't think we have enough advocacy today for the idea of balanced filtering. And so one of the things that I'd like to get built actually before this summer, and I, this is one of these things I, I have functionally in my mind, and I'm, I get this, give this to a developer because this is something that can be pretty readily built, will have a comparison between different sites. Like me, for instance, this is a website that How Public Schools in the southeastern corner of our state uses for students and teachers to share things that they're learning in their classrooms. However, in many of our schools, all new networks are blocked and we can't get to any of those. One of the things that happens with the internet is when we go to a site, our IP address is logged. And this is a cluster map of my blog back in October uh, showing visits in the past 30 days from where people around the world were when they accessed my site. I would like to use this kind of technology and be able to give a grade to school content filters, much like somebody's giving a grade to Coyo Loco here, right here, which is in California. Um, basically taking away the veil and let's, let's see what is really happening with content filtering. The way this would happen is that this website would be available and you click and it would, um, it would log your IP address. These are the 22 Oklahoma schools this year who have given laptops to teachers and students. And some of these are going to be continuing next year, others are not. I think Tipton is the, is the pin that's closest to us here in Altus. Um, Crystal's husband is the superintendent of Cordell. Okay. Yes, and they're continuing next year. This is a photograph at a Hong Kong private school that I visited a couple of years ago. And access to these tools and these resources shouldn't just be limited to the rich and the wealthy. All of our students need access to these kinds of tools. And if we're able to have some transparency in saying, well, look what Cordell Public Schools is allowing their students to do, and look at what Tipton, and even more importantly, how do we promote an atmosphere of accountability where students understand that what they do online, they're accountable for just as they are in the face-to-face -face environment so that they can work in groups and they can create media and they can share. Um, we are not in China. We have, live in a free society and our schools should represent our values uh, in ways that, that you know, in many cases, that they don't. So I hope we'll be able to advocate together for balanced filtering, and I hope this example will not only cause you to think about balanced filtering, but think about education. Okay. Because that was it. That was six minutes and 20 seconds. Or 40, what did it say, 620? Well, 640, right. 20 times, times 20. So let's go ahead and take a break for about 10 minutes, if that's okay. Um, stretch, go to the restroom, grab a drink. Uh, we'll come back in 10 minutes and we'll talk a little bit more um, about some specific sites and places where we can get these copyright friendly images and how we can go about using these for those students. <laughs> 